0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold The Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gundog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T-Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force-free gundog training, The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazons everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force-free gundog training, and i hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months we'll see that's all for now let's get on with the show Train your gun <laughs> <good> dog <laughs> without force <laughs> or fear. <laughs> Motivate <laughs> and educate. <laughs> Hold the line <laughs> is here. Prevention, repetition, generalisation, motivation. <laughs> Hold the line. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hold the Line. This week, I'm going to be talking about adolescence. Wash, my Weimaraner puppy, is now seven months old and she is in the throes of deep adolescence, if that is such a thing. And every dog out there has gone through adolescence, but some dogs seem to go through it in a way that is more difficult, let's say, than others. Some of the dogs that I've owned just don't really seem to have any kind of blip at this age. They just breeze right through it. And Others have really struggled, and I've really struggled, frankly, with their behaviour, and Roche is one of those dogs. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. I am going to talk about Roche and what we've been experiencing, both before this time, the problems and difficulties, and what I've done to try to help uh, address the situation. And I'm also going to talk about adolescence generally and things that we need to be thinking about during this time. So... The other thing I want to say is that this episode is still going to be useful to you, even if you don't have an adolescent dog. So if your dog is interested in the environment excessively and you wish they were a bit more focused on you, you'll probably find this episode helpful as well, because that is the major struggle that I'm going to be talking about. So it's not only for people who've got adolescent dogs at the moment. I hope that other people are going to find it useful too. the line. Okay, so this is the situation that we have at the moment with Roche, which I'm sure lots of you can relate to. So firstly, we've got a real pushing of boundaries. and <clears throat> By that, I actually mean literally physical boundaries. So in our yard, which in our yard, if you're in North America, in our garden, if you are in the UK or Europe, <laughs> we have this wall and fence above the wall. Now, I'm sure this is not a six-foot-high, dog-tight boundary, to be honest, but no dog that I've ever had in this this garden or yard has scaled it or (laughs) attempted to get out and successfully got out. So, of course, Rush would be the first dog to do this, wouldn't she? So it began when she was just sniffing around the bush, which was in front of the wall and fence, and then I think she must have... Realized that this is the route that the rabbits take into our garden from the field next door because there's a tiny little hole in the fence. So, when she was just sniffing around there, I wasn't too bothered. I was outside with them, all the dogs were having a wee. It was like first thing in the morning, and I was pretty relaxed. And then there's kind of like noise of fence falling down and shuddering of the bush. And the next thing I realise is that Roche is actually in the field next door. And I can hear her running about in the field next door, owned by neighbour. And I grab my recall whistle. I recall her. I pause. I don't hear any sounds indicating that she's on her way back. I recall her again. So by the way, before this, she had a really great recall Recall whistle. So response to the whistle is really well trained um until about well until we hit all of this, which is probably about three weeks ago now. Um, so anyway, the third recall whistle I gave, I could hear sounds that she was attempting to come back through the fence and through the planks in the fence that she had successfully managed to pull down. So yes, so <laughs> so that's basically what was going on in our yard. The same the same or similar thing actually went on in some of the fields that we use. So some of the fields that we have, again, they have pretty impenetrable boundaries. I mean, they're, again, they're not dog-tight. They're fields, but they have like really dense hedges. And they're thorny and they've got nettles in them. And they're really difficult to get through. And, you know, dogs just don't usually try to get through them. And guess who does? Guess who did? Rosh. So it's the same thing again. So there's this kind of literal, <laughs> literal kind of pushing boundaries thing going on here. Now, this is actually a really good quality that she has because it's going to be very useful when there is game which is stuck in cover or in a thorn bush or something and she really has to get in there and push it up. So it's going to be great. A lot of HBRs are um, a bit reluctant sometimes to get into the thick cover, especially, I think, the short-haired HBRs. My GSP, Ren, for example, she's not going to be the sort of dog that's going to want to get right into the middle of a thorn bush. Even if she can smell there's a bird in there, she's going to like prance around the outside or point and then move around the bush and go back on point. And she's not going to get right in that really difficult cover when she's asked to, which Rosh, I know, I can see, will. So this is not a bad quality. It's just quite annoying when it's applied to these particular situations. So, So that's one thing. Then we've also got, obviously, within that, Ignoring the recall queue, which was just completely unheard of about three weeks ago. We've got things like retrieves. She will blow off the retrieve. So she will run to the retrieve and be like, oh, that's what it is. Okay, I don't really want that. And then go off and do her own thing. So it's all about doing her own thing (laughs) and not doing the thing that I would like us to be doing. and. Yeah. And we've done the clicker retrieve process. It's thoroughly trained indoors and outdoors. And we've got really solid retrieves before this for a, a, an extended period of time. So it's not, there's really, not some sort of lack of understanding going on here. So I think to sum it all up, it is about seeking out those environmental reinforcers over my reinforcers. And maybe this is, you know, this is what happens when you get a dog which is going through adolescence. They're st- sort of starting to become a bit more independent. They're starting to realize hey, I don't need you. I can be out here in the world without you and I'm safe and it's okay and I just don't need you anymore. Thanks very much. So so I think that's kind of um, what's going on here. And I think for hunting breeds or for breeds which are bred to hunt before the shot, like your spaniels, your HBR slash bird dogs, these are the dogs which are going to be particularly predisposed to be strongly interested in the environment at this time. So so let's talk a little bit about what I've been doing to try to address this. And I've made a little list here. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read you out my points on the list, and then I'm going to go through each one in a bit more detail and give you some examples. And I'll just sort of summarise them all at the end again. So my points are, keep your training area small. Meaning don't continually take your dog into new locations every day. So pick a field or couple of fields, one place where you go and train during this period. And that's for your training, which is on a long line, which you should be using, by the way, if you're having these difficulties that I'm having. Next. Go on your short leash, on a normal, regular length leash, to other places, to busier places, to places where there are people so that you can continue to maintain socialization and so that your dog's world doesn't get incredibly small and doesn't all become about, you know, the one or two fields (laughs) you go to. Um, So we'll explore on some of that in a bit more detail in a minute. Think about weaving together the environment and you, the environment and you, the environment and you. So it's not the environment versus you, because you'll never win that. You'll never beat that. You'll never be more interested in the environment. But it's about engage with the environment and then engage with me. And then you get released back to the environment. And then you engage with me a bit and then you get released back to the environment. So it's almost like we're weaving these two things together. So they, be- they become one texture, one fabric, rather than A versus B. Next. Do you have a motivation problem, or do you have a a problem involving disengagement from the environment? And I'll tell you in a minute how to know which you have. Don't introduce game if your dog is having a tough adolescence. So if you've got a dog which breezes through adolescence and doesn't have any problems, then you can probably introduce game at this time if everything else is going according to plan. But if you've got a dog which is showing signs of being more interest in the environment than in you, this probably isn't the right time to introduce game if you want to train in a force-free way because you're just going to put even more emphasis on all the amazing stuff out there in the environment that isn't you. Rain on their parade. So I'm going to tell you exactly what I mean by that. And that's quite an interesting one. So (laughs) I will unpack that in a minute. And lastly, be very, very happy when they do even the smallest thing well. So, you know, be ridiculously ecstatic and praise them and be really excited. Even the thing they've done is frankly pretty rubbish compared to the standards of what they were doing about three weeks ago or whenever it was before adolescence hit. Just be really happy and really excited about those small successes and act as if they are major achievements. Make your dog feel good about themselves. So we're going to kind of unpack some of those things In a little more detail. Hold the line. Okay, so the first point, keep your training area small. There's two ways to talk about this. One is the actual physical space that you're using. So not moving to a new place every day. So for example, you wouldn't be like, I know let's have a walk at the river today and then tomorrow let's go to these woods and then the next day let's go to these fields and the next day let's go explore this place over here. That's just continually changing up the environment and it's going to be the smorgasbord of amazing stuff. On a daily basis for your dog, and they're just going to be more encouraged to go explore the environment more and more and more, and you'll probably lose control of them more and more and more accordingly so so the first thing to say is choose a spot which is going to allow you to do a decent amount of training and which preferably doesn't have other dogs or people in so if you've got a field if you've got access to a field. Two fields, something like that, which you can use during this time, that is a perfect place to do most of your training. Most of your gun dog style, most gun dog type training. So the training that involves a dog being at any distance away from you. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor, but I don't have a sponsor so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gun Dog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me. And check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. That's the first little bit to say. The other bit to say about that in terms of keeping your area small is using a long line. So it's really important if you've got dogs like this that are having a difficult adolescence to use a long line. If you don't use a long line, you've got no way of... Disengaging your dog from the environment. So, should you recall your dog and they choose to ignore you, you can't do anything about that. They're at a distance away from you. And that's it. <laughs> you can go try and catch them, but good luck with that once they realize what it is that you're attempting to do. And everything will just go a bit pear shaped. So, you need to have that long line on. That is just not negotiable. In fact, it's a big part of the training, which I'll talk about a little bit in a minute. So, it's essential that you've got a long line on your dog. And that you're you have a limited area to train in. Most important things to say. Next, I'm trying to read my handwriting here. Oh, go number two. Go on a short leash to busier places to maintain socialization. So it's important that we remind the dog that the world is a big place and there are lots of interesting things in it, and that the whole world doesn't become these two fields for your dog for months. So in order to remind your dog that there are other people and there are dogs and there's stuff out there, you're going to go somewhere where your dog is going to be on a short leash. So they're not going to have access to this stuff because they're going to be with you and you can, you know, click and treat attention on you or you can do look at that if they're particularly distracted. You can use these distractions in any way that you want to use them. But the idea is that you continue to work around other distractions. But this work is going to be up-close work. So it's going to be work, maybe heel work or sitting at your side or focusing on you in the presence of distractions. Look at that. Um, Anything you want to train which is at your side. So this is not going to be sendaways, blind retrieves, handling, casting, remote sit, whistle stuff. All of that's going to happen in the field. So I tend to go to the field and do a sort of gundoggery session in the field. And then I go to a place where there are going to be people milling around outside. Um, could be like a little cafe, a beach cafe, um, a, a busy car park. Like somewhere where there's going to be some stuff, some life going on, basically. And then I do some more up-close control work there. Not very much. You don't need to do lots of that. You just need to remind the dog that that exists and that all that stuff is still out there. So... Those, those are the location things to say. Think about weaving together the environment and you, number three. So as I mentioned before, you don't want this to become about the environment versus you because you won't win that competition. So you need to teach the dog that The environment and and working with you are not kind of in conflict. It's not like an either or choice, but it's like moving backwards and forwards freely between one and the other. Because that is what a a gundog's task is. Whatever type of gundog you have, they will interact with stuff out there in the environment and they will interact with you. Then they will interact with the environment and they will interact with you. And that happens over and over again, repeatedly. So this is a skill which the young gun dog needs to acquire the ability to switch backwards and forwards between their attention being on the environment stuff out there game scent the world and you and responding to you and focusing on you and the 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 gun dog the successful gun dog needs to be able to switch backwards and forwards between those two things so if you've got a dog which can't switch backwards and forwards, you're going to end up with a dog which is either too interested in the environment and gets a bit lost in it and a bit absorbed by it and doesn't respond to you and goes a bit AWOL. Or you're going to have a dog if if you've got the other dog, the dog which is too interested in you, which, which is hyper-focused in the handler and which doesn't want to hunt and doesn't want to go out there and explore and find the game and blah, 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 blah. So you need to have a balance between these two. And one of the things you're always doing is keeping an eye on your dog and making sure that this balance is evolving and we're not getting too much of one or too much of the other. So we're going to talk about various ways to achieve this weaving backwards and forwards. But one thing that I've been doing with Roche is, for example, in the garden slash yard, <laughs> um, is every time I go out there, and she's now, by the way, she's, she goes out to have to have a wee, to toilet on the leash because... I need to be able to disengage her from the environment if she ignores me. So here's an example. We go out there with her on the leash and in my pocket, I have some treats. She has a wee. And then I wait for her to get interested in the environment, which means smell the grass or a bush or something. While she is engaged in the environment, I say her name just once. And wait one second two seconds and see if she's going to be able to disengage the environment and focus back on me by herself if she can i give her a treat and lots of praise and tell her she's a fantastic dog and then i say go sniff and i release her back to the environment again and we do this three times each time we go out and i'm kind of keeping a mental note of how many times out of three she's able to do this how many times out of three every time we go out is she able to disengage from the environment and pay attention to me when i say her name so this is a good kind of way to keep track of where we are. If I say her name and she doesn't look at me, she ignores me, she continues to sniff the bush or the grass or whatever, then I gently disengage her from that. I gently pull on the leash. I'm not correcting her or punishing her in terms of physical um, punishment or positive punishment. I'm just removing her head from the thing she is smelling because that thing is reinforcing her. That bush, that grass, whatever it is, is positively reinforcing her in that moment and it's reinforcing her for ignoring me. So that's not something that I want to happen. And then hopefully she'll be able to turn to me of her own accord because I've removed that thing out there that is interesting. If she she can't, then I will kind of step towards her. I'll do whatever I have to do with my treat to get her focus and I will reinforce that focus when I get it. And hopefully the next rep goes better because the first rep taught her that I have an amazing treat. So so that's the first thing to say. And it's the same thing when you're practicing your recall whistle. So so what I just described there is just saying her name. So that's not my recall. My recall is not just her name. Her name just means pay attention to me. Her recall is a different cue, it's the recall whistle, several pips on my whistle. And it's associated with a super deeper, amazing, tra- tasty treat every single time. So, And by amazing, I mean like it's so squishy, I have to deliver it with a spoon. So it's something like sardines, gourmet wet dog food, smoked mackerel, pate, you name it. It's really, really squishy and disgusting. So I do the same thing in the field. So I will put her on her long line. We'll go up to a hedge, which I know has rabbit smells in it. I will tell her to go sniff and she will go sniff the hedge. After a few seconds of sniffing the hedge, I will do my recall whistle whilst holding on to the long line. Not so it's tight. It's, there's still some slack in it, but I'm just holding it in case I need it. I recall her. I give her a second to see if she's going to turn and come to me of her own accord. If she does, I'm liberal with the treats to tell her she's fantastic. I give her like two or three spoons of stuff and I release her back to go sniff again. So that's important. If she doesn't come by herself, then I gently, again, put on the long line which is attached to her harness and disengage her from whatever it is that she is smelling. At which point she may then decide to come to me of her own accord because I've removed that reinforcer out there in the environment. If she still doesn't come to me of her own accord, then I will walk up the long line to her until I get her attention, give her the treat, tell her to go sniff. So... I will do this until I've gone through my pot of recall treats because this is the only recall training that we're going to do. If I get three consecutive excellent quality recalls from her, then I will drop the long line on the floor and I will say, go play, and I'll let her run further within this area because I kind of feel like I have that connection with her. She's responsive enough to me. There's no game in the area. I know that already. It's relatively contained. So like I said before, there are these places in the fields where she can get out if she really wants to bust through it. So I've just got to be really careful that when she goes to those places, I can grab the long line, practice. That's an opportunity to practice my recall. And if it doesn't work, I've got hold of that long line so I can gently disengage her from whatever it is that she's distracted by. So that's really important. Now, it's important part of this whole management thing is not to recall her if I'm not holding the long line. So if, you know, she just disappeared out of sight and I wasn't earth shatteringly worried about her being in immediate physical danger, like there's no road there, for example, she's just disappeared behind some bushes or something. I wouldn't recall her because I can't do anything if she doesn't come. I can't grab the long line and pull her gently away from whatever is reinforcing her. So I can't do anything about it. So it's best not to use my recall cue in that situation because I'll just teach her that it's possible to hear it and ignore it. So I wouldn't use it. I would quickly dr- go and try and find the end of a long line. <laughs> um, and if I couldn't do that, I would just, I could, I could call other things. I could say, hey, puppy, puppy, where are you? I could just call anything, but I'm not going to use my special super, duper amazing recall whistle. So that's, this is the sort of thing that I mean about weaving together the environment and you. Now, one thing it's really, really important to stress here in all of this is that every time the dog is released back to the environment, so every time I say go sniff or if I say go play, that the dog is offering me her attention before I say that. So if the dog is on the lead, focused outwards at the environment, I wouldn't say go sniff or go play. I'm waiting for the dog to look at me offer me focus and attention. I'm going to catch that with my go play or go sniff cue. And this is somewhere, something which a lot of people um, go wrong with when they start to do go sniff or go play, for example. So they don't wait for the dog to look at them and they don't time their go play or go sniff for that moment when the dog is looking. So instead the dog is focused outwards at the environment and they say go play or go sniff and so that is what they're reinforcing they're reinforcing the dog being focused outwards at the environment that is what they are um reinforcing when they say go sniff at that time so you need to wait for the dog to offer you focus to offer you attention before you say go sniff so Hopefully, if you stand holding the lead pretty short so the dog can't actually go anywhere, things are pretty boring, most dogs will look at you at some point. You might have to wait a few seconds at first, but at some point, they're going to look at you and go, please, can I go somewhere? And that's when you're going to time your ghost sniff cue for that moment when the dog is looking at you. So, for example, I like to start pretty much all my sessions off with some kind of connection work. And so with a young dog, it might just be, Um, looking at me, offering me eye contact in a sort of static way. So the dog is kind of in front of me, not moving anywhere. And when the dog looks at me and offers me that attention, I might click and treat that. And we might do a few reps like that. But then after we've done several reps like that, and it's becoming pretty fluent, and the dog is looking at me easily each time to offer me focus for me to click and treat, then the next rep, instead of clicking and treating, I will say, go sniff when the dog looks at me. And then that... moves across and becomes something that we do during heel work. So I'll do some heel work straight out of the car. I'll click and treat a few reps using the method, which I call the hand goes up and down, which you can, by the way, check out on my course called Heel on my website. And then when the dog is giving me excellent attention after a few reps of the hand goes up and down, when they're looking at me, I'll say, go sniff. So I'm kind of building this all the time. Each time I practice the recall in this exercise that I've just described the dog comes back to me I deliver them their tasty squishy recall treat and then I'll reach down and take hold of the lead really close to their harness if I need to do more than that I can take hold of their collar so that I can sort of restrict their movement even more because you know they can't put even put their head down to the floor if I'm gently holding their collar so then I'm going to wait for them to look at me give me their eye contact and then I'll say, go sniff. And by the way, if holding the collar isn't even enough, I can step right in front of them. So I'm like blocking their view, whatever it is they're looking at or distracted by. I'm I'm stepping right in front of them to make it even easier for them to offer me this eye contact. So I can then reinforce that with go sniff and letting, letting them go on the long line. So... This is really, really, really important. It's part of weaving together the tapestry of the environment and you, the environment and you. And if you're not marking the right moment when you release the dog back to the environment, then you're not actually weaving together the environment and you. You're just reinforcing focus on the environment because that's what the dog is doing at the moment you, you, you release them. So you've got to wait for that attention on you. There's another thing that I do with the retrieve, which I'm going to describe a bit later when I talk about raining on, the, on her parade. Um, but basically... I'll touch on it a little bit here. So one of the things that I do with that is if if she is refusing to pick up the the dummy, I will hold the long line and I will sort of not let her go anywhere else. We're just going to stand here over the dummy because this is a very familiar scenario to her from having done the clicker retrieve. There's an object on the floor. I'm standing there with treats and a clicker. She knows what she's supposed to do in that situation and she wants to go check out something in the environment. That's why she's blowing it off. She wants to go smell something a few meters away, or go explore, or something, or smell something in the air. And she is choosing to do that over picking up the dummy. So, getting, we're getting into raining on, on her parade here. But I will stand in the way of any scent which is carried in the in the air, or block the the wind coming towards her. If I can, if her head's up in the in the air and she's trying to smell something, I'll stand in front of her. I'll block it. It's not 100, percent but it does something. Um, If she wants to pull and get to something a few um, meters away, I will restrain her and not let her reach that thing. Once she's picked up the dummy and realized that, oh, we're doing this, this is what we're doing, and picked it up and delivered it to hand and I've copiously delivered treats, I will then say, go sniff or go play, I will stand out of the way of the scent that I was blocking, I will give her the thing that she wants in the environment after she's done the thing that I wanted her to do, which was pick up the dummy. So this is another way that we're weaving together the environment and me, the environment and me. It's another It's another um, version of the same thing. So, number four, do you have a motivation problem or do you have a disengage from the environment problem? So, how do you tell the difference? So, with Roche, what she has is a disengage from the environment problem, and how do I know that? Well I know that because when she comes to me, even if she ignored if she if she ignored the recall, if she ignored my word, and I had to gently disengage her from whatever it was and then go up to her, when I deliver the treat. She really, really wants that treat. Wow, she's enthusiastically into that. She's jumping up. She's trying to eat it off the spoon. She's staying with me for the second spoonful, the third spoonful. She is really into that treat. So I can be pretty sure that the problem is not that she doesn't really like the treat. So the problem is not a motivation slash reinforcer issue. The problem is the difficulty she has in being absorbed in the environment, scent, whatever it is, and hearing and registering my cue and responding to that out of that involvement in the environment so that is the that is the difficulty that she has and that is the that is the kind of muscle we need to build and the thing that we need to work on if I had the other problem so if when she came to me she was like oh I don't really want that food I really want to go back over there and go sniff out that scent again I really you know I'm not very interested in your treat I want that bunny poo whatever it is smell on the ground then I would have a reinforcer problem, and I would need to address that somehow I'd need to be thinking about food motivation I need to be thinking about am I using something that is tasty enough for her I need to be thinking about is she hungry when did she last eat what did she last eat? How am I using food in her life generally I need to be having all of those kind of thoughts so so that was a question you need to ask yourself if you're having these difficulties Do you have a motivation slash reinforcer problem or do you have a sort of a struggle with disengaging from the environment problem because they're different and they need different solutions. Now, you may have one of these more complex situations where you've got a dog which is just so highly aroused that the dog is unable to eat food because of their arousal levels. But I wouldn't assume that you've got that until you've pursued the, the sort of food motivation reinforcer approach first. So really make sure that you're using the tastiest stuff imaginable to reinforce your dog before you get into the whole, oh, it's about arousal levels. My dog won't eat when they have smelled game and that kind of thing. So there are dogs that are like that, but actually there are a lot more dogs whose owners are just trying to feed them pretty rubbish food in situations where there are very interesting things. So I would firstly address address it as a motivation if issue if you're experiencing that problem. And now, this is where there would usually be an advert if I actually had adverts on this podcast. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor, but I do not have a sponsor. So instead, I'm going to play you a tune on my Acme 212. The Acme 212 I'm playing this week is an orange Acme T12. I think this was a gift, because it would not usually be my choice of colour. Anyway, here it is. Okay, I will stop there, only because I have three dogs at my right elbow. So there's no advert here because I don't get any funding for this podcast. I record it and I edit it and I upload it and I pay for the server. I do not want to get a sponsor because then I had to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to recommend the products that I want to recommend. But if you want to support me and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways you can support me, which will also benefit you. I hope. So you can check out the online courses that I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you will also love my book, I hope, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. By the way, there are also three ways you can support me. So you can support me by writing a review or give me five stars for this podcast. Or liking my Facebook page, or just generally staying in touch with me. So, that's the end of the whistle pause for this week. Let's get back to the show. Hold the line. I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be but I don't have an ad break I just have me and my whistle my trusty T12 on which I'm going to play you a tune the sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit so bits of plastic have broken off so it will only blow if I blow it really loudly then a note will come out otherwise it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well i hope you can check out some of my courses my online platform forcefreegundog.com and you can also check out my book force free gundog training and the accompanying workbook for it which is a planner called the workbook you can get both of these from amazon wherever you live that is the end of today's whistle pause let's get back to the show do not introduce game if your dog is having a tough adolescence that was point number 5 so when to introduce game is actually quite interesting it's interesting just leaving aside this whole subject and just culturally because in north america it's common to introduce game well i mean i actually saw someone ask a question in a gun dog group like when when should you introduce game and in response someone posted a picture of a litter of puppies chasing a a partridge around a pen implying the earlier the better as early as possible you can't possibly introduce game too soon whereas that would not be the attitude in the UK or in most of Europe where introduction to game is taken at a much slower pace and firstly the dog is expected to be able to respond to basic cues to basic training I think the way to put it would be not to install the accelerator before you've installed the brakes. That would be the way to think of it um, in the UK and Europe. So this is very different, just culturally, just leaving aside the subject of adolescence. But then we have a whole force-free training perspective to to lay over this. So if you're going to introduce game from a very young age and you're going to take the approach of getting the pup almost addicted to chasing game, finding game, then the pup's going to grow up believing that super-deeper amazing stuff is out there away from you. Now, if you're going to use an e-collar at a certain point in a dog's training, then in some ways it doesn't really matter if the dog learns that the the reinforcer is out there away from you because you've got this e-collar that you can use to quote-unquote break the dog at a certain point when you deem that it's time. But if you're going to be training using force-free methods, then you're not going to have this device that you can put on the dog. You are working with your relationship with the dog and the dog wanting to work with you. And this sort of understanding between you, which is not based on force and it's not based on you must comply with the command or you will get hurt. <laughs> um, so instead, it, it is much more cooperative relationship and and if that's that's the basis for what we're doing then i think we have to think very carefully about introducing game and when is the right time to go about introducing that and i think it needs to be introduced into a functioning relationship a functioning training relationship and that the dog is to a certain degree buying into the idea of working with you and and is kind of cooperating with you in that training relationship so that for me would be the right time to introduce game and i think if you've got an adolescent dog that you want to train in a force-free way introducing game is just potentially going to blow their minds and lead to increasing interest in the environment and it's gonna be counterproductive to what you want to achieve so i suggest just delay that a bit until you feel that you've got through this difficult bit of adolescence and by the way whilst adolescence can start as early as six months and can last as long as eighteen months twenty four months even it 's very rare for someone to struggle with these issues all the way through that entire time to to an intense degree. Usually, there is a period in there which is really tough, but it 's not going to be tough the whole time to the to the same extent so so be reassured that you don 't have to get through you know almost two years of this obnoxiousness. <laughs> That probably there's going to be a few months in there when things are at their toughest. But the rest of the time, even though your dog theoretically is going to be adolescent, you won't be dealing with things this difficult. All right, so that is that one. Number six, rain on their parade. So that does sound a little bit kind of punishment like, doesn't it? Well, it's not positive punishment it is in a way negative. <laughs> so we're going to take away from the dog, the other reinforcers. So that means I'm, I think I'm going to go back to the example I used before the example when we've got the retrieve on the floor and we've got a dog potentially running up to the retrieve and going now nah, I don't want to pick that up. Thank you very much. I'm going to just go off and sniff this hedge over here instead. by Bye. So, so if you've got that, again, you've got your long line on your dog. So that's important. As soon as you see the dog is going to blow off the retrieve, you're going to quickly pick up the long line if you're not holding already, because if you know your dog has a tendency to do this and might do this, and you might want to set up some really pretty short retrieves so that you can do them within the length of the long line so that you can be holding that long line and you can get up to the dog as quickly as possible after they've decided to blow it off. So at that point, You are going to prevent the dog from moving away from the dummy, so they can't go and check out whatever else they wanted to go check out. And you're going to block any sort of scent which is in the air. If they want to smell something on the floor, you're going to gently detach their head from the floor. Sometimes when you do have a dog, by the way, maybe I should have mentioned this before, that is prone to sniffing the floor, I do find it helps to be using a front fastening harness because... If you take hold of the clip, which is on the front of the harness, you can more easily gently detach their head from the floor than if you've got your leash attached to the back of the harness. With the leash attached to the back of the harness, you could be practically standing on tiptoes with your arm above your head in order to just get the dog's nose off the floor. So you just don't have as much leverage. So again, I want to stress that in all of this, you are not correcting your dog. You're not jerking your dog away from the thing that they want to go to. You are just gently removing them from that thing. You're sort of preventing them from reaching that thing. So yeah, that's basically what I mean by rain on their parade. Just don't let them have the thing. And then once the dog has done the thing that I want, which let's face it takes about three seconds to pick up the dummy and give it to hand... Then I'm liberal with the treats. Yeah, yeah, you did it. Here's a treat. Here's a treat. Here's a treat. Go sniff. Go do whatever the things you wanted to do. Go check out the hedge. Go sniff the smell in the wind. Do that for several seconds. You get the thing that you want to do after you do the thing that I've asked you to do. So that's the kind of message that we're trying to get across to the dog here. Now, there is one thing that I've started to think about recently, which I kind of find a bit interesting. So when we think about what traditional trainers do with Dogs when they use what they were considered to be called corrections, for example, leash jerks, or for example, um, walking into the dog if the dog gets out of heel position. So the, the handler might um, turn into the dog and walk into the dog's space and almost cut the dog off, so the dog can't continue to move forwards. Equally, with a leash correction, um, they are you know uh, jerking on the leash. Usually, again, when the dog moves out of heel position, let's just use the heel position thing for, as an example here. So. So, yeah, so we could understand this as being positive punishment, as being the application of something that the dog finds to be aversive and wants to avoid in future. However, there's another way of thinking about this, which is that when the traditional handle-up jerks on the leash... Yes, they might be applying positive punishment, but they're also preventing the dog from from continuing to have access to the thing in front. So the dog is moving forwards because they want to get to something in front of them, because they want to explore something ahead, because they've seen something in front that they want to get closer to or smell something or whatever. So when the dog wants to move ahead like that and they are jerked back by the leash... They are that thing in front is removed from them. They are removed from it. Actually, it's better way to put it. Um, equally, if the handler were to turn and walk into the dog, the dog is kind of blocked from going forwards and and stopped from getting access to that thing in front. So one of the things that I want to kind of put to you and suggest is that perhaps part of the reason why what traditional trainers is to be corrections. Perhaps part of the reason that they work is not the positive punishment part of them, but it's the fact they also remove that thing out there in the environment that the dog wants to get to. Does that make sense? So in terms of learning theory, it's negative reinforcement. So that part of things, the negative reinforcement part of corrections, if you like, we can definitely use as force free trainers. So we can definitely prevent the dog's access to stuff that they want to have access to. So this is one thing I want to put to you all to kind of experiment with a bit, not correcting your dog, but really trying hard to think about stopping the dog's access to stuff, which is reinforcing behaviors that you don't like. Because I think my theory at least is that A lot of the reason why traditional trainers find corrections to be useful, or meaning that they influence behavior, isn't the positive punishment part of them, which is what they think is happening, but it's actually the negative reinforcement part of them, which force-free training can absolutely use and should use. And part of being good at force-free training is being able to identify the reinforcers around you in the environment and to use those. So I think... That makes sense. Anyway, let's get on with my other points. Number seven, be very, very happy, even when the thing they've done is pretty insignificant. (laughs) So that means that, you know, if you say the dog's name and they look at you, then you're going to be really happy about that. You're going to give them multiple treats. You're going to scratch them a lot. You're going to praise them a lot. And you know what? You're going to do that even if it's around the house. So even though yeah, you know, usually with the dog, which is not in adolescence, you wouldn't necessarily be giving your dogs treats for looking at you around the house when you said their name. But yeah, you're going to, I would recommend you do that with a dog, which is in adolescence. So you are going to make the dog feel good about themselves, make the dog feel successful, make the dog feel like they can do this. This is a good thing to do, working with you and getting your, your reinforcers, your praise. This is a a great thing for them to want to do. It pays to do this. It's great to do this. And that's the kind of message you're trying to instill. And then I have added on a final point here, which is about management. Generally, we've kind of management has been running through all of these points in various different ways, but I just wanted to kind of highlight it and pull it out as a point in itself, because I think it's so important. So management is behind the idea of just using one or two fields. Management is behind the idea of having that long line on your dog and of making sure that you've got hold of the end of the long line before you ask for any cue that the dog might choose to blow off and ignore wherever possible. So that is all about management. And I think that is really important. But the other thing to think about is how to provide your dog with exercise, physical and, and mental exercise, while you're in some ways making the world a bit smaller for a while, because let's face it, they're not going to be running about as far as they can reach over massive fields way away from you and you know, getting as much physical exercise as they might otherwise get. So what can we do about that and how can we help them not end up under exercised? Because they can become a little bit of a vicious circle whereby you are really tightly managing your dog And that means keeping them on the long line, not letting them reach what they want to reach and depriving them of in that physical exercise. And then your dog feels like, I'm just not, you know, well, they just end up full of beans, basically. And they just want to, you know, run about everywhere even more. (laughs) And they can be really obnoxious at home because they've got so much energy and then they drive you insane and do things around the house like eat the furniture and so on and so forth. So this can all kind of become a problem, which compounds itself. So it kind of pays off to really think a little bit. How am I going to give my dog some physical exercise whilst I am limiting some of their physical exercise in these other ways, due to you know using the long line? So different, there are different solutions there. So one thing you could do if you've got if there are two of you is you could do elastic recalls, which is part of my reliable recall course, uh, backwards and forwards across the field. So. Elastic recalls don't provide the dog with much space to do anything else, to go and check out anything else out. It's literally just going backwards and forwards between you and another person. And that can be over some quite considerable distance. So you can get a decent amount of physical exercise there, paying the dog with super treats each time, and without there being much empty space for the dog to decide to go off and do anything else. The dog is also trailing a long line, and usually one or the other of you is able to reach the end of that long line pretty quickly should something happen. So the other thing you can do is you can do marked retrieves. If your dog is doing retrieves and not blowing them off, you can do some marked retrieves and that does provide some physical exercise. You can also start to train your blind retrieves to white fence posts. And I will often do this using food with a young dog, which maybe isn't retrieved bonkers yet. So I will often put some tasty food in a ladle, a soup ladle, which I've strapped with cable ties to my white fence post. And then the dog will run to that. And that provides a lot of physical exercise, particularly once you've got some good distance on these blinds. It's excellent preparation for running blind retrieves, proper retrieves with a an, an object, a dummy or a bumper later. If you want to know how to do that, you can check out the course on my site. I think it's called Blinds. And that covers how to start to do that training using white fence posts. The other thing you can do, though, is at home, you can do more training at home. So at home, you're not having that kind of um, concern about the environment. Your dog isn't going to be able to run off and you don't have any game in your house, probably. So... (laughs) So you can do lots of training around around the house. So I highly recommend that you maybe explore some things that are not very gun gun doggy. Maybe the Fenzi team titles, for example, which you can check out online on the team website. That's T E A M and Fensy F E N Z I or Z I if you are in North America. <laughs> um, and so. Yeah, that gives you ideas for stuff that you can train in your house and gives you concrete goals to work towards and things to be doing with your dog, which are building your relationship with your dog all this time. Like You and the dog are training together, working together, and it's building all of that muscle, as it were, which is only going to be useful to you in the future. And it's giving your dog some mental exercise, which is going to tie them out a little bit given that you can't give them as much physical exercise at the moment. So, so that's going to help some too. I also recommend that you just generally reinforce the heck out of things that your dog does around the house anyway. So for example, if you want to ask the dog to come from the kitchen into the hall or the hall into the lounge, or you know, you're asking the dog to move from one room to another, or you're asking your dog to get off the sofa or whatever, that you just... You just use treats to do that all the time. So you could do the thing where you use the dog's name, you say their name, and when they move to you, you give them the treat. So that you just are using that all the time around the house as well, reinforcing the heck out of this too. So that's another thing that that I really highly recommend that you do. It just kind of makes the day a bit more interesting for them. And you're building in, This idea of working with you, paying attention to you, that you are relevant all the time. So I hope that that helps. I think those are all of the points that I've mentioned before. I'm just going to recap them quickly so that they're kind of fresh for everybody. So number one, keep your training area small. One, maybe two fields, depending on the size of the field. And make sure that you have a long line on your dog so you can limit what they have access to, and that you can prevent them from accessing environmental reinforcers after your cues if they have ignored your cues. Number two, go to other places which are kind of more urban and have other stuff happening in them people, cars, bikes, not an overwhelming amount of stuff. You don't want to overwhelm your dog, but just enough stuff to remind the dog that there is a world out there beyond your two fields. Because to some lesser degree, socialization is continuing throughout adolescence. And we just need to continue to remind the dog there's a whole world of stuff out there. But also during this time to teach the dog that they can focus on you in the presence of all this stuff. So you're kind of training more control type exercises in the presence of these distractions. Number three, think about weaving together the environment and you. Think about making a tapestry which consists of the environment and you. So the environment and you are so tightly interwoven that it's almost impossible to prise them apart. The environment and you are one thing. That's what you're trying to get across to the dog through the various different engage with the environment, engage with me idea. Number four, think about whether you have a motivation problem slash reinforcer problem, or whether you have a problem involving disengaging from the environment and focusing back on you. Number five, don't introduce game to your adolescent dog if you're having a tough adolescence. Number six, rain in your dog's parade. Block everything that you can block. Stop their access to it until they've done the thing that you would like them to do. Don't do this in a punitive or harsh way. Just gently remove the thing that they would like to check out until after they've done the thing that you've asked them to do and then give them a cue to tell them they can Go check it out. Number seven, be very, very happy. Cheer them. Be a cheerleader for them. Whenever they do anything which you like, even if it's a tiny, insignificant, small thing that you would usually take for granted from a dog and that, frankly, you don't think is that brilliant, just be really positive. Speak in a high-pitched, happy tone. Give them multiple treats and make them feel like they are the best dog in the entire world. And then number eight, Think about management all the time behind all of this. Make plans for being able to give your dog physical exercise when they may not be able to get physical exercise in the usual way that they would usually get physical exercise. Think about also increasing mental exercise at home, training other tasks that might not be gun dog related, just to keep building that muscle of you and the dog working together. Think about using reinforcers when you ask for anything from your dog, even if it's just moving from one room to another, give them a reinforcers for doing that. Constantly be building that relationship between you and the dog. So there are some common mistakes which people make with dogs at this age. And rather than just telling you what I think you should do, I think it's also a good idea to highlight the uh, the, the main things that people can do quote unquote wrong, which can create even bigger problems. So one problem is people rightly identify that their young gun dog is wanting more exercise, more freedom, more um, opportunities to explore the environment, and they give that to the dog. So they start to take longer walks. I hate the word walks, by the way. I'm going to use it there because I think it's applicable and relevant. So they just start to take the dog out to lots of different places and let the dog explore on their own terms. And then after having done that for a while, they wonder why when they call the dog, the dog doesn't come back. So, So that's the main problem. That's one main problem. People just letting the environment blow the dog's mind before the handler and the dog have built their relationship to the point that it's strong enough to continue to exist when they venture together into those environments. So that's one big problem. The other big problem I see is people not realizing the importance of prevention and why and how to implement that. So that means the long line, but it also means using the long line and not just the long line, the lead as well. So You'd be surprised how many people can stand there with their dog on a lead and watch their dog do something that they really don't want their dog to do. Like, I don't know, if it's a male dog cock their leg on something, you'd be surprised that people will just stand there and do that. Or for example, if someone's called their dog and the dog isn't coming, people who want to use force-free methods will often get the treats and they'll go up to the dog. And instead of using the long line or lead, which they happen to be holding, They will put the treats in the dog's nose or they will go, hey, look, what what have I got here? I've got some really nice treats. I've got some really tasty treats. All the while, the dog's continuing to ignore them, sniffing whatever patch it was sniffing before. So that's another example. So you've got to use prevention. You've got to use management. And it is and can be quite physical sometimes in terms of gently pulling that long line to remove the dog from the thing that they're finding to be reinforcing. So I think sometimes people... When they hear the words force-free, they think that it means completely hands-off. But it doesn't mean completely hands-off. In fact, sometimes it can be very hands-on, but it's just not punitive hands-on. It's hands that are removing the dog from things that are reinforcing the dog when we don't want the dog to be reinforced by whatever it is. So, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, another little example there just has just come to mind is after... I've recalled Roche and I've given her her recall treat. I then want her to look at me and offer me eye contact before I release her to go back to the environment again. So part of the things that I wanted, I don't want her to grab the recall treat and run off, having not really engaged with me in any way. I want her to acknowledge me and I want her to Uh, wait for my release back to the environment so that I'm getting properly woven in here. I'm not just, I'm not just a treat dispenser. So what I'll do, she'll come back to me and I'll give her her tasty treat, and then I'll gently take hold of her collar. And I do take hold of the collar this time and not the harness, because if I just take hold of the harness, she can still bend her head right down to the floor, sniff the floor, look around. So she is still more free to move her head and not offer me the eye contact that I want. So I do gently take hold of her collar just with a hand through it, and I don't, you know, pull it or do anything um unpleasant for her with it. I just gently hold it and restrain her so she can't go off anywhere until she looks at me. And because I'm holding the collar, she's much more likely to look at me than if I were holding her harness, because she can move a lot less when I'm holding the collar. So she'll look at me, and as soon as she looks at me, I'll say go sniff and release it to go and sniff. So she learns over time Or well, the quickest way to get released to go and sniff is to offer eye contact after I've done my recall. So I'm going to come back, eat my treat, offer eye contact immediately without me even having to touch her collar anymore and get released back to the environment. So it's all about these, it's all about prevention really. And the thing to say about prevention is it's not very sexy. It doesn't look very incredible. You don't, um i don't know drive past someone implementing prevention with their dog and go wow look at that that is some incredible dog training there look at that person holding their line or look at that person holding that dog's collar it's just it's this thing which is completely unappreciated and it's in the background of everything and every successful force free trainer is using it to some degree or other but it's pretty invisible unless you know what to look for so you need to get really good at implementing prevention if you want to be successful um, so, so that is my other kind of big tip and thing which people often do wrong is, is not, not implementing that enough. Hold the line. Okay, everyone. I think I've waffled on for long enough this week and I'm going to leave it here, but I'm looking forward to you catching up with you again soon. Have a lovely time until I next speak to you. And those of you with adolescent dogs out there, I completely feel your pain at the moment. Hold, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line.